0: cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maim than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, How will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another.
1: Father in heaven, we thank you for these words of Jesus. We thank you for brave Esther. And we thank you that you are on our side. We pray that we find ourselves not working against you, but joining you joyfully with you for your mission here in East Dallas And beyond. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. From obscurity to authority. A young girl named Hadassah, with her cousin Mordecai, finds herself first being taken captive by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and then under the rule of King Ahasuerus. Thank you, Warren. We can call him Xerxes, Xerxes I also. She is without mother or father, but is cared for by her cousin Mordecai. And she comes out of a place of obscurity into a place of unbelievable authority, not just to the forefront of the king's court, but to the role of queen, But it's not just any old king's court. This is the most powerful dynasty of the day. And this young girl, Hadassah, whose Persian name is Esther, finds herself in a place to serve. She finds herself with great power at her disposal. Now, most of you know the story of Esther, of the wicked Haman. And if we were if we had some Jewish blood in us, every time we would have heard Warren read the word Haman, we would have hissed and booed because that's what you do at Purim on the 14th and 15th of Adar. The wicked Haman had devised a plot to exterminate the Jews. Mordecai gets wind of this and is notifying the Jews in Susa, the fortress city where the king and Esther are, but also trying to notify the Jews in the surrounding areas. Remember, they're in, they're in a diaspora. They're, they're then taken captive. Now others who were able to make it back to Jerusalem, like Nehemiah and Ezra, to begin to rebuild the wall under the auspices of still the foreign powers, they had more autonomy, if you will. But Esther and Mordecai find themselves under the rule of this Persian empire, of Xerxes the I, Mordecai gets wind of the plot and in a desperate bid speaks with his cousin Esther and utters those famous words, who knows, but that God put you here for such a time as this, to speak to the king, to save your people. God called Esther out of obscurity into a place of authority And what did she do with it? She demonstrated the character of Christ. She says, if I perish, I perish, but I will speak with the king. You see, King Xerxes, um, like maybe most Persian kings at the time, was mercurial, didn't quite know what he was going to do. And if you came into his court without being bid by him, it could cost you your life, unless He extended the golden scepter. And then you were allowed to come into the court. So when this young girl, called out of obscurity and into authority, approaches the king, she doesn't know whether she's going to live or to die. But she willingly gives of herself so that the people of God, dispossessed, not in their homeland, not living in the place that God gave them, but eating the fruit of their sin, the bread of their own toil. You know, this is a result of their sin. She wants to rescue them. And so she shows forth and she demonstrates the character of Christ. And what happens? She saves her people. The king is always generous to Esther. He says, I'll give you anything you wish for up to half of my kingdom. She exposes Haman's plot and cruel irony, Haman. Remember that gallows that you built for Mordecai, 50 cubits high? You're going to be hanged on it. The Jewish people are saved. It's a victory. It's a rejoicing. And it has a part in the larger salvation story that we're a part of as a church because had God's people been exterminated... Could there have been a Messiah? Could there have been one who would come to the people of Israel, a light that would dawn on them, on those who walked in the shadow of darkness and death, to come proclaim the kingdom of God? One who would also go to an obscure place, Galilee, to call his followers. Now, the last few weeks we've been walking with Jesus and his 12 disciples. We've seen some of their successes. Some of their foibles, um, more foibles, but we see Jesus calling these obscure ones, calling these twelve, and we know that He's given them a place of authority. We know that these are the specified twelve. They, these are this Rabbi's disciples. They are sent out in His name. They're sent out to preach the good news, to cast out disease, to cast out, to heal disease, to cast out demons. In fact, earlier in Mark chapter 9, we have a great example of them trying to cast out a demon. But how did it go with the disciples when they attempted to cast out the demon? When they were given authority. Do you remember if they were successful? They weren't. They were not successful. And Jesus says, this one only comes out by prayer. So these disciples, men of Galilee, taken from the shores of Galilee, from a place of obscurity, overlooked and forgotten, put into a place of authority. We find them now in tonight's gospel lesson where John says, and this, it's interesting because Mark, this is the only time Mark ever points out John specifically. But John says, hey, Jesus, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not following us. Now, just put yourself in their shoes for a minute. They've been given authority. They know the guy. They have the inside track. They know the proper methods, even though they couldn't cast out the demon earlier. So they, they see themselves maybe as the protectors of this kingdom, as people who have the authority to maybe say, well, you can't do that unless we say you can do that. Or stop, you can't do that because our master who called us out of obscurity into authority didn't tell you that you could do that. So unlike Esther, who gave of herself, if I die, I die in order to save her people, the disciples use their authority in a different way. It shows their continued lack of understanding. It shows their continued ineptness. I know they're good guys. But it shows that they don't quite get it. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Now think about this for a minute. Read what maybe is not obvious. We're not very, I'm not very good at reading anymore. I have something what, what people call attention deficit disorder. And I'm now owning it. And I'm okay with it. Even if it causes me to trail off on little rabbit trails and sermons, I'm okay with it. Because I was told by a friend that attention deficit disorder is, it's not a problem of knowing what to do, it's a problem of knowing when to do what you know to do. Now, if you get that, that means that you might have ADD as well. (laughs) So what you may not see when you read verse 38 is that this guy cast out demons. He did it! He used the name of Jesus. He used the authority of Jesus, but did he usurp the authority of Jesus? Was he like Haman? Was he plotting to exterminate all the demons, only then to topple the authority of Jesus? No. He used the authority of Jesus and the name of Jesus to cast out a demon. And if the disciples would have known better, they wouldn't have said, Hey, teacher, make him stop. Now, I'm making a big deal out of this because friends, the church, maybe maybe it's just guys like me and Tony. I'll introduce you guys to Tony later. Everybody say hi to Tony. Hey, Tony. Father Tony. Maybe it's just people like me that wear the clothes. We make a big deal out of the authority. Oh, well, who who gave you permission to carry on with this, this behavior and whatnot? But notice what Jesus says. Hey, if the guy's not against us, he's for us. That levels the playing field. You may have noticed that we specifically and intentionally pray for other churches in our area. And it's not meant to be an exhaustive list because if we listed them all, we would never stop praying. But we do that because we recognize the kingdom, the kingdom culture that says those who are not against God are working for God that the resources of heaven are unlimited, and that our Lord Jesus Christ is drawing to himself disciples, calling them out of obscurity, giving them the authority of his name, giving them the authority of heaven. And we want those people to succeed. But I promise you, and maybe this has been true for you, but I'm not always like that. Sometimes I'm like, hey, wait a minute. And I find myself not being at all like Esther and not being at all like our Lord Jesus Christ, using my authority for maybe defensive purposes, for maybe self-serving purposes. Jesus goes on to say, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So Jesus is saying, Whether this guy is exercising a demon or giving, or showing you hospitality to you, disciples. Remember, he's addressing the disciples. Whether he's doing either one of those things, my Father in heaven sees it and he knows it. And there's a reward for that. That means that, as one commentator put it, we need to be expectant and ready for God to draw in participants in his mission from all sorts of unexpected places. People who will join with Jesus in proclaiming and participating and really what we see here is a cosmic battle. Good versus evil. There's not a middle way. It's kind of like the Dallas Cowboys. You either really love the Dallas Cowboys and root for the Dallas Cowboys or you really don't. And I'm not, some of my Cajun friends over there are saying, yes, that's true. So, you know, there's either one or the other. Maybe you're a Saints fan or a Philadelphia Eagles fan. But there's not one or the other. And I'm not comparing the Cowboys to the kingdom of God. Please don't, (laughs) do not infer that incorrectly. But here we see Jesus alerting us that whether someone is, performing a work of great power that the disciples couldn't even perform. These sanctioned, authorized emissaries of the Son of Man, whether they're doing that or whether they're offering a cup of cold water, a simple, beautiful act of hospitality, those people will receive a reward. So they come from obscurity, into a place of authority. Unlike Esther, the disciples do not behave in the character of Christ. They still don't quite get it. But now what? Jesus now turns, takes a turn in his conversation. And he's going to talk about the personal holiness of these people. In verse 42, he says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, we remember the little ones from earlier. Remember, he's in Capernaum. They were up all the way at Caesarea Philippi. They've come back down into Galilee. They're at Capernaum. They're at the home base. He takes the child in his arms in the passage just before. And he says, if you want to be the first, you've got to be the last. You have to be a servant of all, like me. Son of man, he's about to say, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for all. And he says, whoever receives one such child in my name, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Meaning, whoever receives you disciples that I am sending out in my name, they are receiving me. And when they receive me, they're receiving the Father. But now Jesus turns the corner and he says, of the little ones, whoever causes these to sin, it's better if a millstone is hung around the neck. Now, the millstone was a very large stone that was used in a mill to grind out uh, wheat, grain, to make a flour. And this was a common punishment that the Roman Empire had used in Palestine at that time. Who are the little ones? The little ones, in this context, is the guy casting out the demon. The unauthorized guy. Jesus gives a stern warning to his disciples. Hey, he's not against us. He's for us. He's doing something in my name. Whether it's exercising or giving a cup of cold water, don't cause him to sin. Don't forbid him. Don't misuse your authority and then he turns the corner and he begins to speak about entering into either life or entering into death and jesus i'll just say out front he's not calling for self mutilation if your sin causes you to sin or if, excuse me if your hand causes you to sin cut it off Jesus is using hyperbole to say, so great is the life that I am giving to you in this cosmic battle that I have initiated in bringing the kingdom of God to earth, in bringing the age to come now to you in my person, in my being. The life that you will inherit is so great that if there is something that would cause you not to inherit it. Even if it's a part of your body, cut it off. Get rid of it. Not many years ago, in this exact time of year, I was enjoying a cold beverage at Trinity Hall. Got a mosquito bite. A few days later, I was in the hospital for a week with staph infection in my arm. Now, thanks be to God, we had... uh, antibiotics, and all sorts of other things, but they eventually had to operate. But that was a very real situation where I would have lost my arm. But you know what? I gladly would have lost my arm if it meant that I could stay alive. If it meant that I could stay alive and be with Amy and the kids. And and you guys, we weren't here yet, so I mean. But the thought of you... That's right, see, Bill, Bill knows. That's how drastic the infection was in my elbow. It's okay, I'm I'm clean. You're not going to receive any infection. (laughs) And Jesus says, sin is deadly. Do not let it inhibit you from entering into life. Don't inhibit the little ones. These guys who are using my name, who are learning, draw them into your midst. Help them. Teach them by all means. Don't inhibit them. Because that would be bad. But what would be worse is for you to stay in sin and not enter into life. And then Jesus quotes Isaiah 66, an eschatological passage, speaking of hell, speaking of hell, a final judgment. And it's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, etc., the same kind of thing. You'd rather enter life lame than to go to hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. And here's where he quotes Isaiah 66. So every Jew with an earshot would have heard this. In fact, when they read this verse at synagogue, they would add another verse after it just so it wouldn't stop at where their worm does not die and the fire never stops. But every Jew in earshot knew what this means. The judgment of God, the separation of God. Not living with God forever. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Forever, and then we have this enigmatic phrase, for everyone is salted with fire. Wait a minute. You want me to avoid the unquenchable fire? So I'm going to, hyperbole, I'm going to chop my hand off so I can avoid that. But now everyone is salted with fire? And here Jesus takes a turn into terminology of sacrifice. When the victim would be brought to the temple, to be put upon the bronze altar. The priest would put salt on it. And the victim would be consumed. And the smoke of the, smoke of the sacrifice would rise. We almost think of what St. Paul would say to the church in Rome. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, because of all that Jesus has done, because none of us is worthy, because all of us need the grace of God and none of us deserve it. Therefore, in view of God's mercy... Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Everyone will be salted with fire. All of us are sacrificing ourselves, or maybe another way to put it is, all of us are giving ourselves over to something in worship. To our own ego, notoriety, stuff, It's all different for all of us. Often it has to do with the things that we've experienced in our past, our own woundings, our own brokenness. But Jesus is calling us out of that. He's calling us out of falling in on ourselves into life. He's calling us away from putting ourselves on the altar of something and then being consumed by that something only to realize that that is not God at all, that that cannot satisfy, that that cannot let us enter life. Instead, he says, you need to put yourself on the altar and be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And St. Paul would say, this is your spiritual or reasonable act of worship. Hmm. It's a very thoughtful, beautiful, and powerful thing to do. Jesus has hard words for his friends, sometimes. But he speaks the truth to us, and he calls us into life. He says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? And then have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. What, Jesus? Unquenchable fire, worms, Everyone salted with fire. If salt loses its saltiness, how can it be salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I think Jesus is bringing it full circle. John said to him, Teacher, someone's casting out demons in your name. That salt is the sign of the kingdom. It's the sign that God is in us. It's the sign that, as Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, you're the salt of the earth. You're pres- bringing life to the earth. You're bringing goodness to the earth, you who are following me. And Jesus would say now, you are salt. That's how you'll recognize one another. So be at peace with each other. Don't ask who's the greatest. Don't call out the guy who's casting out the demon in my name. He's with us. If he's not against us, he is for us. So out of obscurity, God called Esther into a place of authority. She gave of herself, literally, to the point of death. She could have died in order to save her people. The disciples, on the other hand, after they had been called out of obscurity falling forward always, are put in this place of authority and when they have the chance, they don't recognize what their teacher had taught them. What about us? How will we respond when we see the saltiness in someone else? When we see the signs and the marks of the kingdom of God? When we realize that sin may indeed be consuming us and that it's better for us to do away with the source of that sin and enter into life than to be judged eternally by that. Or Jesus put it another way just a little bit earlier with his disciples. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. ask you, where are you? What is it? that the Lord is doing in you? How is he drawing out your saltiness, the signs of his kingdom in your own life? What have others said to you? And what are the things that we need to put aside, those self-destructive and insidious things? Let's pray. Jesus, we we read your words with humility. And we thank you, that you, when given the option with all authority in heaven and on earth, you gave of yourself that none would perish. God, we pray for St. Bartholomew's, that we would be a place where we're moving from perishing to life. We pray that we would be a place where we can call others into life. Not scaring people to death, Lord, but inviting them to follow you as you have invited us. And we know that when we follow you, that sometimes we just have to put certain things away. So we pray that you'd have mercy on us, that your spirit would give us wisdom to listen, to hear, and to see. But most of all, Lord, As we go through that process, help us be at peace with you in one another. We pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.